Okay, I think we're ready to begin. We're studying Revelation chapter 22. I, I keep thinking that every time I come in and <clears throat> speak again on this chapter, it's going to be the last one that I do, and uh, <clears throat> it hasn't happened yet. I would like to think that I could finish it up today, but I do not know. But anyway, the uh, title of this message is His Face, His Face. Um, it's based on um, what we see in verse 4 of chapter 22, and they shall see His Face. And some of the things that I'm going to teach you today are... Uh, I've actually, uh, to some extent, brought these thoughts out before. But I'd like for you to understand that in bringing some of the thoughts that I'm going to be bringing to you, you must understand that there, <clears throat> uh, there are going to be thoughts that... Um, uh, are not traditional. Um, there are thoughts that I have discovered, at least in my own personal studies of Scripture, things that uh, have been a blessing to me. Um, but I, I want to assure you that in bringing out things that we haven't thought about before, it's not to somehow or other present myself as somebody that has some kind of special understanding because there's nothing could be further from the truth than that. If there's anything that I fear as a person uh, created by God, it would be to misrepresent him in any way whatsoever. I fear that more than I fear anything else. Uh, that's why the Lord closes the volume of the Revelation with the warning about uh, not adding to or taking away from his word. Well, uh, what could be uh, a, a clearer example of that than somebody getting up as a Bible teacher and teaching something that is not true. Uh, I would fear teaching something that is not true. But at the same time, um, in saying the things that I, I want to bring out, um, I want to pr provide it more for the purpose of uh, your meditation, your own personal studies, um, and and pray that the Lord will give you an understanding as to whether or not what you're hearing is true. Um, another thing that um, I want to say about this teaching is that 
I do not believe that it has a thing in the world to do with uh, being saved or not being saved. Um, you cannot understand many things in Scripture and be saved. You can be wrong about things that you teach and be just as saved as the person that says things absolutely right. And there are examples of that all through Scripture. I'm amazed at how little the disciples understood about fundamentals of the faith as it has been uh, taught throughout the generations uh, for 2,000 years. Uh, they did not understand uh, the fullness of the revelation of who Jesus Christ was. They, they called him Lord, and their understanding of him was so limited by their finiteness, the smallness of their capability of of knowing what they were even doing because here's the creator God standing right in front of them. What human can really enter into that? I mean, when you think about it. And so, on the one hand, they worshipped him as God. But I'm telling you, there had to be growth in taking that in. And we see the disciples maturing tremendously after Pentecost, after that the Holy Ghost had come upon them. And I think that what happened in the case with the disciples is, is true throughout the generations. We all grow in our understanding of this amazing book. And I also realize through the teaching of the Apostle Paul, that it has not pleased God to reveal everything there is to know about his unfolding revelation from the beginning. And that's the significance of Paul. Uh, well, Daniel being told, seal the book until the time of the end. Um, no one is going to really understand this prophecy that God gave Daniel until the end. And so he says, seal it. I don't want people to understand it. It's not, it's not time for them to see this yet. And the reason is because there hasn't enough happened in the way of evidence for them to see the truth of it. But as God's unfolding revelation takes place, along with it comes the evidence. For instance, uh, the unfolding revelation of the Lord bringing the children of Israel back to the land of Canaan. Folks, in our lifetime, uh, this has happened. In 1948, this happened and they came back. And um, Ezekiel 38 and 39, I mean, even in the 1800s, there were not enough things uh, in the way of global politics 
that people would get that excited excited about Ezekiel 38 and 39. But I'll tell you one thing, people are excited about it today. Why? Because now that this revelation has begun to be understood in 2023, um, we look at what Russia is doing. We know something about global politics now that uh, has more to do with the fulfillment of Bible prophecy than ever before uh, since the days of Christ. Another example is the unfolding uh, revelation of Scripture in terms of what Daniel said in the 12th chapter that knowledge would increase Men would be running to and fro in the earth. Well, we can see in our generation uh, more about the evidence for that in global travel. And it, it was in our lifetime, folks, that this took place. Um, Knowledge increasing. I mean, in terms of technology, I mean, these cell phones we have, the computers we have, the advancement of technology is un unbelievable. And, and this is what Daniel was talking about in Daniel chapter 12, how that knowledge would increase. Well, it has incredibly increased. Um, Revelation chapter 11. How could the whole earth rejoice over something that happened in Jerusalem and they see it? Can, can we not understand why the Lord would conceal certain things and tell Daniel, you know, you seal up the book because the evidence for believing what I say has not taken place yet, but it will. The evidence. The evidence for the faith. The reasons for believing. This is so fundamental and so important in the Christian life is to see that our faith is not a walk in the dark. We know what we believe. And we can, we can see the evidence. Uh, in the reading of... Uh, um, What's his name? The, the lawyer, uh, Simon Greenleaf. I, I got so interested in that guy, I, I ordered uh, three volumes of his books, about this thick. And I, I haven't exhaustively read them, but I'll tell you one thing, I've plowed the field pretty good. And I've ordered several of those smaller copies of his book on evidence, Simon Greenleaf. And he's, he essentially says that a person would be a fool uh, to not believe the record of Scripture simply based on evidence. And so in the unfolding revelation, it's very important in the mind of God that the faith be uh, strengthened and, and be filled with power because of the evidence 
for it. And so we've got it today. We've got the evidence that has unfolded right around us. And so my point in saying all of this, uh, Paul later said that he was going to reveal mysteries that were hidden in ages past. And I'm telling you that the Lord is still unfolding this revelation. And now here we are, studying in the last chapter of all that God would say prophetically forever. This is it. When you read the last chapter of Revelation, there is nothing else coming from heaven uh, in terms of his program for all eternity. This is it right here. There will be no more prophecy after this. So it's done. And so why should we be surprised that Bible teachers, not only here at Calvary, Christian, uh, Calvary Memorial Church, but I believe throughout the world, I believe Bible teachers and preachers are seeing things that they've never seen before. And we should not be surprised at that because of the unfolding revelation. And so if I say things in here that seem to be uh, untraditional and going off the chart, uh, all I ask you to do is bear with me and think about it because the Lord may be showing us some things that are absolutely true, and I don't think we want to miss it. I really don't. And so um, the title of this message today is His Face, His Face. Have you ever really thought about what it would be like in eternity to come to see His face? What, what are we going to see? What's He going to be like? Well, we read in uh, the Psalms and in the book of Isaiah about his face. Now, what kind of face do we see? A visage that's so marred more than that of any man. We read about his back being plowed like furrows of a field. Is that what we're going to see? Are we going to see his nail-scarred hands? Are we going to see the opening in his side where the sword went through? When we see his face, what are we going to see? Well, if we're going to see his nail-scarred hands... Maybe we're going to see the lamb that was slaughtered in, in all of the agony that he experienced. I'm saying these things to you because I do not believe that's going to be the case at all. Not in the slightest. 
I'm telling you that when you get into the book of the Revelation, the Lord is putting a huge difference between the past and the future, and we need to recognize the difference. And what is customarily taught in the church concerning the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world is absolutely essential. And for our time and for our day is far, far more important than what you're going to hear from me today concerning the future eternity. And what I may think in terms of what we're going to see when we see the Lord Jesus Christ. I personally do not believe we're going to see the slaughtered lamb. Even when it talks about it here uh, in this passage in uh, uh, Revelation 22 and verse 1, it says, uh, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the lamb. It mentions the lamb. And What's confusing to some people as they read this is the Lord is taking us into eternity future to show us what it's going to be like with the new heaven and the new earth. But what's confusing is what we see in verse 16. There's a lot of what is being said here is not to be necessarily associated with that eternal world that God is going to create in the new heaven and the new earth. And the reason we know that is because of verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Well, what is absolutely familiar to the churches? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Because I'm going to tell you something. You do not enter into the new heaven and the new earth without understanding that message about that Lamb. That sacrifice that the Lord began to teach the world about in the book of Genesis when he clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skins. I'm telling you that the lamb is the central theme of everything in the Bible, I believe, up to and through the millennium. After that, we're entering into something that's really different, really different. And a partial insight into that is what the Lord said in Revelation 1 and verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. In what condition? With a visage so marred more than that of any man? I don't think so. With nail-scarred hands? I don't think so. With an open side, with a back that looks like a plowed field, to live in union with his bride for all eternity to come, looking like that, I don't think so. 
When we see his face, what are we going to see? I believe that I can take biblical logic and prove that these things that a lot of times are traditionally taught and believed are not the case. If I'm wrong, um, I'm not bothered by that either, if I'm wrong, because I have put my faith and trust in the Lamb of God. And what he looks like is not going to change my perspective of him in terms of how I see him because he is precious. As a Lamb of God, he is precious to me. But when I read the scriptures and I read what the Lord has to say about this future that I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it even entered into our, our hearts, our minds and our hearts, what God has prepared for them that love him. I believe with biblical logic, I can safely teach what I'm going to teach. And when we see his face, we're going to see the most beautiful face. And his visage is not going to be marred. And I believe the blood is not going to be out of his body. It's going to be in his body. And we will never think about him in terms of death again, ever, in the new heaven and the new earth. Why would I say that? Because he did. He sure did. And we'll look at these things. But let's, uh, let's uh, rehearse just a couple of things that I think are critically important to really grasp a little better the significance of these closing two chapters. Because the closing two chapters of this revelation, this huge revelation from Genesis, from the time he first created until he creates again a new heaven and a new earth, um, we understand that the Bible begins and ends in strikingly similar ways, similar ways. Because at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, God is revealing his identity. And the book closes the same way. He says, I'm Alpha and Omega. I am. I am. It ends with his identity. Who is he? He's God. He's God the creator. But it begins the same way. In the beginning, God, he identifies himself as the creator. And when he creates a new heaven and a new earth, he's doing the same thing. And he makes it very clear all throughout and in between Genesis and Revelation that beside him there is no creator. He is the only creator. 
He says, I am God, and beside me there is none else. There is none else. And so we see identity in Genesis. We see identity in Revelation. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He goes on to say in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. He's talking about who he is. And this is the message of the whole Bible is coming, is coming to know God because we don't know him. And we don't know one thing about him that's right that's outside the revelation of himself to us. He has to reveal himself to us or we can't know him. This is uh, basically the theme of Romans chapter 10. Who has ascended up to bring Christ down from above? No one. But very, very I say unto you, uh, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. John five twenty four. That's an incredible verse, but it has to do with his identity. He's the one that came from the Father. He's the one that came from heaven and believeth on him that sent me. Well, if he was sent by the Father, where was he sent from? Well, he was sent from heaven. As whom? As God, manifest in the flesh. Paul said, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh. And so who knows God but God? And God has revealed himself to us. And so there's a warning about uh, saying anything about him apart from what he says about himself. And then we see the similarity of creation. The whole first uh, two chapters of Genesis is about God creating. The last two chapters is about God creating in the book of the Revelation. The last two chapters. So the first two chapters and the last two chapters. I'm telling you, folks, God wrote this book. There's no way that you could have such things uh, as what we're talking about if God didn't write this book. There's not a man alive that could put together this book the way it's written. And the Bible begins with a warning and it ends with a warning. And the very same thing. It has to do with the same issue. And so for all of those centuries, the warning was never different. Because of this warfare, this contest between the mind of God and the mind of man, and 
man's desire for truth to be what he wanted it to be. And so there was a warning in the, in the book of Genesis about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't you eat of that tree. That's a warning. Because if you do, you're going to die. And they ate and they died, just like he said. Well, what was that all about? Well, it was about adding to his word and taking away from his word. Well, how does it close? Same way. He warns you. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is being warned about in the last chapter. If anybody adds to my word, if anybody takes away from my word, I'll take his name out of the Lamb's book of life. He'll go to hell forever. That's amazing to me. Another thing that's interesting is how it begins with the death of the innocent for the guilty. Because that's what we see in the clothing of Adam and Eve is the death of innocent lambs. To cover the, the shame, which is what nakedness became symbolic of, is shame. And God covered the shame of their sin with coats of skins. With his own righteousness, he did it. In Revelation 22 and verse 1, um, this is the significance of the Lord reminding the churches, as we see in verse 16, about that lamb. And so you've got the lamb in Genesis, and you've got the lamb in Revelation 22. And it's mentioned two times, the lamb, in verse 1. And in verse 3, verse 3 says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So he's not talking about the Lamb in terms of the new heaven and the new earth. It's important to read it correctly. Because he's mixing two things together here. And you have to see this when God writes. How he writes and his writing style. Because it's sort of telescopic. In that he's talking about the churches. And simultaneously talking about the bride in eternity. But you have to put a difference between how the terms are being used. In the church, the Lamb means everything. And it does to us, sitting here in this place, Calvary Memorial Church. What are we memorializing? Calvary. Where the Lamb was slain. That's what's so precious to us. And that's the way it ought to be. And that's what primarily should be taught is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. I, I am so thankful for the preaching in this church that focuses on this because without it, there is no salvation. There is no salvation. But when you get into 
the new heaven and the new earth where we are one with Christ. And we see the answer of the prayer of the Savior in John chapter 17 that we might be made one as Jesus Christ is one with the Father, that we would be one in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what John chapter 17 is. And I'm telling you that in that day, in that day, when we're one with Christ, there will be no need for the message of redemption. Ever. No need. No purpose in the preaching of the gospel. No need. No need to even remember it. No need to remember it. And Jesus Christ, I believe, is going to be, when we see his face in that eternal setting, there's not going to be the slightest memory of what we did to him. Not even the slightest. How can I say that? I didn't. He did. Jesus Christ said it. He revealed it to his prophet, Jeremiah. And he said, you're not going to do that anymore. It's not even going to come to mind anymore. I didn't say that. He did. He's the one that said that he would remember our sin no more. Do you think that he would walk up and down the streets of gold with his visage so marred and no blood in his body and nail-scarred hands and all of these things? When he tells us there's not going to be a memory of any of that. Because it's done away. And that's his word. He uses those words. It's done away. And so we're going to talk about that just a little bit. Things that are done away. These are not my words. These are his. His words. But do we believe it? Regardless of what is traditionally taught in the church. Or what is traditionally totally ignored in the church. And I'll tell you what's totally ignored in most churches in America today and the world. Teaching on the book of the Revelation. That's what's ignored. There's a many a pastor that will tell you right out of the gate. No, we don't teach the book of the Revelation. That's too complicated. It's too... It's too mysterious, the, the wording in there and the things that he talks about. It's just too strange. I, we, don't, we don't get into that. It's troubling. It's troubling. Well, how do they get that? I mean, over and over, we're told in the Scriptures uh, how we need to be knowledgeable of these things and the blessing that comes to those who read and study this prophecy. The blessing to the churches. The churches are supposed to study this book. God said that. But there's a many a preacher that says, no, we don't study it. 
We don't, we don't, we don't study it. Verse 7 of chapter 22 says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. You show that to the next preacher that you ever run into that says, No, we, have, we haven't had many messages out of the book of the Revelation. You show him that verse. Not only that, turn him, turn him over to Revelation chapter 1. If you want to look at this, uh, he begins the book by saying the same thing. Verse 3, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy. And keep those things which are written therein for the times at hand. I do not regret, and I, I have no idea how long we've been studying the book of the Revelation, but it's been several years. I do not regret one moment of the fact that we have gone over and over and over for several years in Sunday school studying Revelation. Why would I do that? Because I wanted the blessing. God said it. Are we going to believe it? I think so. Well, there are other things that God said. But in Revelation chapter 21, if you'll turn to that, we'll see some of the things that are done away with and again it's God that's saying it it's not it's not me but beginning at verse 1 it talks about the new heaven and the new earth but look down at verse um, 4 and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Who said that? God did. There's this joy of his heart to say that, because I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love him. Folks, we have no clue how good it's going to be. And, and the things that we have done, our crimes against him, our crucifixion of him, our sin against him, even as his children, and how we every day had to go to him and ask him for forgiveness. And he was always faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said he would, and he did. But there's coming a day where that'll never happen again. Never. Nor will there even be a memory of ever having done it. And I'm telling you that when God raises us from the dead, a new creature, we are going to be born as it were, the first time in his mind, holy, unblameable, 
and unreprovable in his sight. You tell me why Jesus Christ will walk up and down the streets of gold, having said that, looking like a slaughtered lamb. <coughs> Ain't going to happen. That's not the picture of Scripture. According to the word of the Lord, these things are going to be done away. Twenty-one and verse three. It tells us something wonderful. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, "Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them, and be their God." And be their God. In what way? Folks, as a bridegroom. Not as a slaughtered lamb. As a bridegroom. As a person born. As holy as God is holy. As unblameable as God is unblameable. As unreprovable as God is unreprovable. In the sight of the Father. And he says in his sight. Colossians, what is it? Is it chapter 1, verse 20, 21 or 22? That's where it says that. That we will be holy. Unblameable. Unreprovable. In his sight. Verse 4. Again, no tears from their eyes. No more death. No more sorrow. No crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. All things new. For these words are true and faithful. He meant it. And that's why he added that. These things are true and faithful. Verse 1 and of 21 says there is not going to be any more sea. No more sea. I wonder why it says that. Because seas came about as a result of division. Not God dividing himself away from man, but man dividing himself away from God. And what that caused was division among men. We couldn't get along with one another either. Because everybody has a, has, has a self-will. Everybody wants to be their own God. Everybody's view is different concerning what is right and wrong, good and evil. And so there was a division in the world. And God is basically telling us that there's going to be unity in the world that he's going to create. 
in the new heaven and the new earth, there's not going to be a sea that divides. We're divided from Europe by 3,000 miles of water. And God has allowed this to sort of protect us from one another. Because had he not, we'd have killed one another. And so that's one way to think about it. In chapter 21, and verse 22, there's not going to be any more temple. There will be no more temple. As the Jews practiced, you know, the Solomon's temple and several temples were built. There's not going to be any more temple. He is going to be the temple of it. 22 and verse 5 says, no night. There's not going to be any night. No need for the sun or candles. Because God is going to be the light of it. 22 and verse 3, there's no more curse. Um, according to his, his letter to Pergamos, he's going to give us a new name that no one knows saving he that receives it. Now, how do you understand that? Well, that's not hard to understand. Those of you that are married, uh, you've got some kind of little name, probably, that you call your wife. Uh, and no one else really knows about that name but you and her. And uh, that's what the Lord is talking about. This is going to be so personal. This relationship with him is going to be so personal. It's going to be so private. With every single person that's saved, we're so special and so loved by God. He gives us that secret name that nobody knows but him and us, what it is. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what my wife calls me. It's embarrassing. I'm not going to tell you what I call her, but that's a secret. That's the way it's supposed to be. Um, in chapter 22 and verses 18 and 19, I want you to understand that what the Lord is saying there is when he says not to add to or take away from his word, this was his way of saying this is the final message from heaven. There will be no more prophecy after this. So he begins the Bible and ends the Bible with that warning. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, we learn that there's going to be no more old nature. That's what we learn. A nature that cannot sin. That's what it says. Any more than Jesus Christ can sin. I so look forward to that. That to be old glorious day. Where it will be as impossible for me to sin against God. To have an evil thought of any kind. 
as it is for Jesus Christ to have an evil thought or to sin against him. And so if you study 1 John 3, 9, uh, he that is born of God sinneth not. And he cannot sin because his seed is in him. And that's, that's what it's talking about. It's the life that God has given us as a free gift cannot sin. And that's going to be our nature for all eternity to come. That's going to be one of the huge differences in this new heaven and new earth. In Matthew 22 and verse 30, there's no more marriage. I wonder why that is. Well, the Lord is very jealous. He's very jealous. And he doesn't want us walking around in eternity thinking about who we were married to down here on this earth. Can you imagine why? I can tell you why. It's because we're married to him. He's our first love. And everybody that's saved is married to Christ. He doesn't want you talking about being married to somebody else in that marriage. I mean, listen, uh, those of us that, you know, have lived in this world and gone through these kinds of things and some being married a couple of times or three times, maybe even four times. You don't live with a wife and talk about some previous marriage. You don't do that. And Jesus Christ is not going to have it either. We're married to Christ. That's the only marriage that's going to mean anything forever. That's how you understand this. That's why he said there's no marriage in heaven. I'm not going to have any competition. Listen, he's going to tell us, like he told Ephesus, you've left your first love. You can't love your husband, your wife, your children. Your own self more than me. And so it's a reversal of what the tragedy that took place in Genesis. The Lord is bringing us to himself to be one with him, to never love anything else, including our own selves, more than him. That's why there's no marriage in heaven. That's how you're supposed to understand it, folks. He is the bridegroom forever. Uh, my time is, is getting gone so quick, but I want to, before I, I leave this thought, I want to take you back to Isaiah 54. If there's ever a passage that you need to study, it's Isaiah 54. where he talks about this widow. Sing, O barren, thou that dost not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that dost not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. 
And then he goes into it. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Now he's talking to the believer. Thou shalt not be ashamed. Neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. You cannot understand that statement without understanding that God is going to so clean the slate of what we did to him. The widow is the wife of God who killed him, who crucified him. And he goes on to say it, verse 5, For thy maker is thine husband. He tells you who he's talking about. Thy maker is thy husband. Why was she a widow? Because she killed her husband. She crucified him on the, cruci on the cross of Calvary. But he says, you're not going to remember that. The day is going to come, you're not going to remember that you ever did that. God said that. For thy maker is thy husband, verse 5. And the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. And now listen to this. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, and a wife of youth when thou wast refused. When thou wast refused, he reverses it. And, and makes himself the guilty one that actually refused her rather than her refusing and crucifying him. He reversed it. Folks, that's what the cross of Calvary and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ means. He took our sin, our crime, even the murder of himself on the cross, he died in our place and he gives us his righteousness, his innocence. And I'm telling you that in eternity to come, that's how God is going to see us. And there will be no remembrance whatsoever of the fact that we ever crucified him. None. It ain't going to happen. How do I know that? By what authority can I say that? Isaiah 54. Read it for yourself and think about it. Think about it. Listen, do this. I know that time is gone, but look, look at this right quick. It won't take but a second to do it. Jeremiah chapter 3. In verse 16, I've shown you this several times. I want to show it to you again in connection with Isaiah 54. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 16. And it shall come to pass, it shall come to pass, when you be multiplied and increase in the land, in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind, Neither shall they remember it, 
neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done any more. Well, what's the Ark of the Covenant? <laughs> Folks, it's a type of the coffin that Christ was placed in after we slaughtered the lamb. Slaughtered him. That's the language of the psalmist. The slaughter. A lamb to the slaughter. No memory of that. Forever. Well, we might come back, finish up a few more thoughts later, but please think about these things. I know it's uh, different, but uh, it's going to be different. So let's pray. Uh, oh, my. Benny, dismiss us, brother. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that it's forever settled in heaven. It needs to be settled in our hearts as well. We pray that you would help us to be able to take these things, to understand them, to use them for your honor and your glory. Thank you for our pastor. Pray that you'll be with him as he brings us the word in the next service. Pray that the things we say and do in this meeting would honor and glorify our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.